Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. React in a positive way. We need positivity for this second half. Positivity, belief, positivity, belief. 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 Welcome, listeners, to The Extra Inch. My name's Wendy, and I'm joined by Alex Doyle, consultant at Optimised Potential and doctoral candidate in sport and exercise psychology at the University of Portsmouth. Welcome back, Alex. Hi. Thanks for having me back. Our, our resident sports psychologist, um, Alex, we spoke in some detail before about um, resilience and the concept of winners and bottlers and efficacy in individual and team performance and the reinvestment theory and some of the stuff around, I guess, just general sports psychology approaches to managing a team. Um, and you've since also written a piece for our newsletter, which was superb, really, really enjoyed that. And you got in touch actually a while back because you listened to a conversation we had around something Jesus Perez said. And it started an email chain between us. And I thought, Do you know what, we need to just get you back on here and have another conversation because there's so much still to talk about. Um, how have you been, firstly? Uh, very good yeah with the the classic caveat you know I think everyone's using at the moment like good all things considered but yes and uh looking forward to yeah the the easing of all the lockdown rules and getting back to something looking a bit more like normality yeah I mean just in time for just in time for spring summer as well which is which is great um so let, let me read to you this um Jesus Perez quote which was sent in by one of our listeners Keith Weichel Uh, It's quite a long one, so just bear with me. So Perez said, there are two ways in football to coach. You can coach with fear or you can coach the will to try. It's risk with knowledge. So if you say to a right back, be careful with this pass, don't do this pass, don't do that, then this guy will try to choose the other three options you didn't say and it's dangerous. But if you say to this guy, be in a good position, be in a good angle and then you try, try because it's you on the pitch, I give you a position and then it's up to you. Now we have one guy playing who has good skill and takes a risk in possession. We don't tell him to be careful but to try to read the situations, sometimes you need to pass and go back and offer support. Um, and so you you picked up on the fact that this is a really kind of a frequent discussion in sports psychology around challenge versus threat thinking. Can you explain to us um, what you meant by that? Yeah. So, yeah, as, as you said, the, the sort of the idea of kind of challenge and threat thinking is is one that comes up a lot in in sports psychology and across kind of almost any type of uh, type of sport. Um, and it sort of basically comes to the idea of of, you know, 
the way that we perceive a situation, you know, any any given situation that that could be potentially a bit scary, we actually still have some control over that. So even if there's a circumstance that you can't control, the way you interpret it, the way you perceive it is is still kind of vaguely within your control. And it also comes to the idea that there's basically sort of different stages of that kind of threat analysis. So in the moment you see something happen and your brain goes through a couple of different phases. So you don't have an immediate reaction necessarily. So if you can see that situation as more of a challenge rather than directly as a threat, there's different reactions that your body will go through and and different sort of psychological outcomes as well. Um, And, you know, so that could be, you you know, if you sort of are presented with a situation, so like what, one of the ones I sometimes use is like, if you imagine you're kind of the, there's like a sort of scene in a, in a film, you're kind of in the canoe and like all of a sudden there's a rumble that kind of clearly there's a, a waterfall approaching, right? Like you can either see that as a threat or a challenge. And the, one of the key things that might differentiate how you view that is, are you a good swimmer or not? Right. So I was swimming was my sport growing up. So for me sitting in that boat, I might feel pretty comfortable. I can just jump out of the boat and swim to shore. The canoe might go over the edge, but that's fine. I'll be fine. So I'll be like, okay, well, this isn't ideal. I think that's an important thing to bear in mind with the threat or challenge thinking is is it's not necessarily an ideal outcome that you're looking for, but it's the ability to to cope and and having the resources to cope with that situation. So I might go, okay, cool. I'm abandoning the canoe. I'm going to swim to the side. Fine. If you're a poor swimmer, you don't have the resources in that moment. And so you you will obviously see that as a much scarier moment or, or, or kind of circumstance. And but, you know, in that case, that example's very sort of maybe a bit kind of black or white, right? Depending on are you a good swimmer or not a good swimmer. But what's interesting is how much of that is is also sort of internal, right? So how much of your kind of existing sort of psychological profile, if you will, can help determine whether you go into a situation and you go, okay, cool, I'm just like, this could be a bit scary, but I'm going to see it as a challenge, or this could be a bit scary. Oh, no, in fact, it's very scary. I am now threatened. Um, and, you know, it, that can often come down to things like, you know, a sort of, if you like being an underdog in a given situation, right? Like, so, you know, you kind of come up against you know, like FA Cup draw, you're a sort of one of the minnows coming up against a big team, right? It's very easy. You could either be like, oh my God, this is going to be terrible. We're going to get absolutely smashed. You know, maybe you're San Marino against England, right? Like you can either go out there and be like, this is going to be humiliating, embarrassing, a waste of everyone's time. We- I'm going to get outclassed. Or you can go, there's nothing but upside for me here, right? I can go out. Worst case, I might get Harry Kane's shirt at the end of the match. Best case, I'll have played against some amazing professionals. I'll learn from that experience. And very best case, you pull off an amazing surprise shock result and you you beat them. And then you go down in history as the team that beat England, right? So, and and how you approach that is is incredibly important, right? And 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 it's the difference between essentially sort of your brain triggering a kind of uh, your sort of your threat response, which is which can be very overwhelming and can lead to a sort of underperformance in those situations. Or it can be like, okay, no, I'm I'm excited. And, you know, you'll still get kind of a nice hit of adrenaline, which is useful for your body because adrenaline primes your body to to react physically. So that's helpful. But you don't want too much of it. And you don't, you know, because that can be where where the problem starts. So having that difference in sort of perspective is is 
really helpful. And there are ways of sort of trying to coach people to think about that, whether that's sort of, you know, and, and we spoke a little bit about some of this stuff before of, you know, if you can draw on sort of analogous situations, right? So if you can draw on something and they don't have to be identical, but if you can kind of go back and find examples of when you have succeeded in the face of adversity or whatever, you can use those to sort of say like, okay, right. I've not necessarily faced this exact situation, but I do have confidence in, in my own resources to be adaptable or to be resilient or whatever. And so that can just sort of build that sense of, yeah, okay, I'll, 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 I'll have a go basically like might get absolutely trashed. This might be embarrassing, but I'll make the most of it. I'll learn what I can and I'll take the positives. It makes complete sense. So in in framing the situation in the way that Jesus Perez did, what was he what was he offering to his players in doing so? I, I think, first of all, fr- framing is exactly the right word, because I think what that quote does a really nice job of is sort of stating that there's two ways of, of thinking about things and and two ways of communicating as well and yeah this is a point i think we touched on the last time i was on the pod but and also in the 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 sort of question that i answered over email as well was you know the way that you can think you know frame things and communicate things is is really important as well right so you know the the classic example is if if you kind of focus on the negative a negative outcome your brain will still think about that negative outcome right so the, the classic don't think of a pink elephant immediately a pink elephant pops up in your head similarly if you're taking a penalty kick the least helpful thing to think is don't send this wide right because the last words of those are send it wide and that's that sort of like lingering in your head as a thought whereas if you can go up and think top left corner or straight down the middle have a clear idea and and frame it positively you're much more likely you know then you, there's none of that sort of doubt or that sort of focus on the negative outcome, you're just sort of framing it as a positive and that's what you're going to try and do. And I think that's very much what that quote gets at as well is, you know, right, here's the, I want you to do this rather than, and and I think it's also quite nice because it sort of says like, if you just say, you know, if if a player has five decisions in a single moment that they could do, right, I could run, I could pass, I could try and beat the man, I could whatever, you can kind of, if you just say, don't do X, don't do one of those. It leaves all the other options open. And so that just leads to greater uncertainty. And in the moment, they might just be thinking, okay, well, I know not, I know what not to do, but I actually haven't been given very clear guidance about what I should do. So it's, it's also helpful in that regard, just I think probably, and that's probably just good coaching as much as it is good psychology. It's just like, here's what I want you to do. Here is a clear plan A, please do that rather than you know, this is plan F. So don't do plan F because then it's <laughs> unclear what, what, what else you do want. Um, but I, I think all of that is is then also is kind of there's there's a nice acceptance in there about risk and the importance that risk can play. Right. R- you know, football, as with so much in life, is a sort of risk reward balance. Right. You you take certain risks. They will pay off. Sometimes they won't pay off others. And so it's about balancing that decision as well. Right. So it's and what I like there is is a sort of an acceptance that you know, sometimes it is good to take risks. And we, we have players in the squad at the moment who who take risks that, that pay off and sometimes they don't. And that's great, right? Like that's how you unlock defences sometimes, right? You can't just always play the safest pass. Um, and, but that, that won't always work. And I think there's a, there's a nice sort of touch of kind of essentially compassion in that, that, you know, 
if you are doing the right thing and you're you are making the sort of the right decision, you're you're trying to take a calculated risk that would be worthwhile. But sometimes it still just won't quite go to plan, right? And and that's that's fair enough, right? Like that is again, you know, sort of coming back to topic that we spoke about last time, if you're thinking about in terms of control, like you can't always control exactly what's going to happen, right? Even in the the just milliseconds from when you look to play a slightly risky pass or something, right? Players move positions, your player maybe has stopped the run you thought they were going to make, or a defender has seen it and has reacted quicker than you expected or whatever. So it could, in the moment that you made the decision, have been the right decision. And by the time the ball gets to where it's going, even if you've executed it perfectly, it might just not quite have worked it out right. So there's so many variables in there that it would be incredibly harsh to sort of castigate that player and say, like, you shouldn't have taken that risk because actually sometimes that's exactly what they should have been doing. Um, and so I think all of that just really helpfully sort of ties into this idea of like just kind of building up an attitude whereby you will occasionally see opportunities and rather than seeing them as a threat of, oh, if I try this risky chip or, you know, back hill or whatever, like it will go wrong. It will. And then I will get dropped or I will be in trouble with the gaffer or whatever. If you are constantly thinking like that, that's that's kind of very much the epitome of that sort of threat state thinking. Whereas if you can kind of go, yeah, no, I'm 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 going to risk it. I'm going to try that that risky pass. Then that's sort of more of that, like, yeah, because there's upside to this. There's even though it's maybe a little bit unlikely, it's still that challenge sort of sense of like there are probably benefits here that I can that I can get from this. It sounds very sort of optimistic and. Um... What's the word? It feels like the glass is half full and um, progressive and a growth mindset and all these all these things. But are there any situations in which the threat states would be the better um, thing to aim for? For, for? for like a team of psychologists working with a team, is there any sort of scenario where you think it would be useful to do the opposite of what you've just described? Oh, that's, that's interesting. I mean, our threat state... You know, our, our, our bodies, our brains are still very much rooted in our sort of cave person ancestry, right? Like we, we, we still basically walk around with the same brains that we did a couple of hundred thousand years ago when having a threat reaction was extremely helpful, right? Like if you and, and the way that, you know, that sort of fight or flight response or now it's sort of more often called fight, flight or freeze, but like is, you know, if you walk into you're walking through the woods and you find one of your clan mates and they've had their leg bitten off by something, right? It is good for your body to go threat like, and, and react accordingly. Right. So that's where that comes from. And and I think it's also very important to acknowledge that, that that part of our brain is still definitely trying to help. It's just that it's incredibly ill suited to life in 2021. Like we, we just don't really encou- encounter si- saber toothed tigers on the tube. So we don't really need that response nearly as often as our brain thinks it does. Um, and that because our brain isn't really adapted, it can get triggered by all sorts of aspects of modern life where our brain goes, ah, a threat, even though it's just a picture on Instagram or it's just your boss trying to give you some constructive feedback or whatever it happens to be that can still trigger those threat instincts um all of which was me sort of stalling for time while i tried to think of any sporting situations where it might be helpful uh, and i 
off the top of my head, I can't really. I think even if you, you know, even thinking about, say, the the Ajax Champions League match, right, where it was really do or die in that last, you know, last half of the, the match away, like, is is you still want that challenge sense of there's still some upside, right? Like, let's, you know, go out there, play the best that we want, you know, that we can, play the way we want to play, take some chances, take some risks, and see what happens. Whereas I think if, you know, if, if you were in a, th- and that's obviously an incredibly extreme scenario, right. Is, uh, uh, and, and there is huge upside, right? Like nothing, nothing sort of epitomizes that more, right? Like there is a reason that anyone who was a Spurs fan for that match, that match will live in your brain, like till the day you die, right. Is because there was enormous upside from having the challenge mindset in, in that moment because it pulled, they pulled it off. Right. Um, and so, yeah, there's the, I, I, I can't really think of any scenarios necessarily in a sporting situation where that, that would, the threat state would really be helpful. Um, my brain is ticking. I'm wondering whether conceivably in like a combat sport, maybe okay. like, you know, where you are actually sort of potentially in kind of more physical peril conceivably maybe, but I think even there you'd still, you'd still want to kind of have that challenge mentality to, to, you know, stick to your game plan, do, do what you can learn from it, get the most out of it. Cause otherwise I think you, you, you've basically mentally sort of thrown in the towel at that point. That makes complete sense. Yeah. No, I was just interested in sort of, because all of these things are options, right? These are, you, I say options as if you're controlling robots and of course sportsmen are human beings and mm-hmm. it's not that simple, but these are techniques that can be used to, um, promote different perspectives and, and different focuses and different ways of approaching um, matches and scenarios and scenarios within matches. So I guess it's, it's it's interesting to try and understand when you might use one technique and when you might use another. I, yeah. I guess it's also worth considering the influence that a, a long-term approach in this way might have on a team and the opposite. So, so when might, what are the, what are the side effects of, um, of constantly so for example if you if you've taken the approach of of developing a challenge mindset for your team across across the course of a season and yet everything's going wrong for them on the pitch what what's the player meant to think at the end of that i mean i i think you know and uh, you know coming back to the sort of canoe example right um which i'll admit is, is it's not perfect but you know at least they're like you know the why it is quite helpful is like it's not ideal right like in an ideal world you'd have just carried on comfortably sailing down a nice friendly stream in your canoe full of your supplies or whatever like so the fact that your canoe has gone over the waterfall is not ideal but you've come out okay right it's not the best scenario and so i think even you know even if you come out of a season where you have sort of you've tried your hardest you've tried to maintain that challenge mindset if you have if you've actually really been sort of living that challenge mindset you will at least still take the positives right so sure. even if you're a club who's been you know you've been promoted to premier league you've been absolutely smashed you get relegated like you might look at that and go that was kind of a horrible waste of time or you can go well there was still a season where i was a premier league footballer I got to play against some of the best players in the world. I got to learn from that. I got to develop my game. You know, there are there are plenty of positives you can take. And I think that that would all be part and parcel of that sort of challenge mindset. Probably be happening on a micro scale as well. I think that'll be happening match to match as well. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember when we spoke before, you spoke a lot about setting goals and uh, having realistic goals. And I guess the idea would be that if your goals were realistic in the first place, then you can still judge them in some way and and find positives from um, even, you know, Huddersfield, for example, the terrible season that they had in the Premier League. I'm sure that they would still find some positives because they'd have had a level of realism in their goals at the start of the season. Yeah, and and yeah, and I think the the goal setting thing ties quite nicely into that because also if you're you know if you're looking at just an outcome, we spoke about the difference between sort of outcome goals as a kind of big overarching dream right uh, uh, and maybe that's something like okay right we've just been promoted so our outcome goal is we just want to stay in the premier league right so survival like but you still need to break that down into the performance goal so what what are you going to do as a team week in week out to make that happen like how and then you break that down into the process goals so that each each player and also as a team you know what it is you're going to be doing in training in order to give you those performances that you think will will achieve that goal so and uh, yeah so I think then within that even if you've been absolutely thumped you know and you you're rooted to the bottom of the table you might still be able to draw benefits from the fact that like well actually you know like we went out there with a the game and we were able to play it we were improving and you know then you can kind of try and build from there and and you know hopefully you know in in that circumstance like you would you would hope that that will start to have an impact on your performances and then the outcome but also that sometimes like you know that there is just a golf in class right (laughs) so realistically like that's not always going to be possible there's not always going to be a fairy tale sort of escape at the end of the season um but you know you, you still try and take from it what you can God, I mean, it must be so difficult when you're when you're managing a team who is clearly worse than all the other teams to try and instill that mentality amongst your players that they actually have a chance in any game. I mean, I, I, I take your point earlier about the sort of giant killing. The um, you're sort of going into a match thinking, well, I've got nothing to lose here, so so it doesn't matter. But trying to do that every week must be, gosh, really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And it it may also, you know, I guess if you're, if you're that manager, like probably trying to sort of focus on things like, you know, like, especially if you're a team who's like never or rarely been in the Premier League, like, so like, what does that mean to the, the fans? Yeah. Right? Like, you know, those longstanding fans who haven't seen your team in the, the Premier League for a decade or ever or whatever, you know, like is, you know, all right, well, at least like, let's go out there, let's put on a good show for them right like even even if it's become clear that you're you know you're already relegated or pretty much guaranteed to be relegated halfway through the season you might still try and just sort of like play for pride play for some self-respect play for the fans those kind of things so i i think if if i were in that scenario i I would be trying to sort of frame things uh in, in that sort of way but still sort of coming back to you and therefore you know that's this is how we want to play here are the skills that we need to work on the positioning the blah 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 all of those things yeah that makes that makes sense and I think that's kind of what Wickham are experiencing in the championship this year playing at a level that they're just not used to playing at and and yet they're able to take something from it because I mean if nothing else players are getting exposure to a higher level of football they've never played at before so they're sort of creating a legacy for themselves and potentially earning transfers in the in the long run um I think, Alex, this is also pertinent. This discussion around challenge, challenge or threat thinking is is pertinent to another discussion we had on a different podcast recently around the times at which teams play their matches. We had a question in particularly around 
is it beneficial to play last thing on a Sunday or, or like, would you rather play first thing on the Saturday or Friday nights as, as they are nowadays? And, uh, and, and the, 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 I forget who it was. I, I apologize to a listener who sent the question in. They were talking about participating in spelling bees and whether they prefer to go first or second. And yeah, I, I, I we had an interesting discussion about it. We all sort of placed ourselves in that situation. I would rather go first, I think, on reflection but presumably this is this can be managed by the team manager of a team of sports psychologists as well yeah absolutely and and i, I think it is uh, yeah that's that's a, a another sort of prime example of of how your perception of a situation can impact it right like there is no structural or, or like mathematical benefit in playing on the friday night or the sunday evening like it's still three points for a win right so in in those terms going out there and winning the match is still as important right you still play 38 games over the course of a season all the rest of it you know so like it doesn't it doesn't actually give you an advantage in any sort of concrete mathematical way of course there are psychological psychological factors but you could just as easily spin it either way around right like and so i think you can you know thinking i think the the, the when you guys answered that question uh, on on the podcast, you started to talking about the season where we were chasing Leicester, right? And we were constantly playing on the Sunday because we were in the in Europe. So it was we were always sort of chasing. We, we already knew the result, and and there's kind of two ways of looking at that as well, right? And it, it almost comes back to that sort of underdog mentality. If that's how you want to view that challenge threat, is you kind of go, okay, well the pressure is starting to build on on Leicester, right? Like they've they've won their Saturday lunchtime kickoff or whatever. We just, like, we can just do whatever, right? We're, that means that we've gone three points behind them. So if we can pick up those three points, excellent. We keep the pressure on them. But like we, you know, there's basically sort of no downside because we're already behind them. So we can we can start catching them up again. We can't overtake them. So that's kind of off the table, right? We can't get six, point for, six points for this win. So that's just off the table. But, and again, I think it then sort of comes back to that focusing on the, the processes and focusing on the performance, right? Is you still, you, you, you would, I think, as much as possible, basically just sort of say like, we're going to go out there and we're going to play, you know, it, it sounds like a cliche, but we're going to play our game, right? Like that's, that's what you want. Whether that's kind of because you have a clear, overarching sort of strategic philosophy of like this is the way we always play or if it's more of a sort of chop and change depending on your opponent that could also feasibly be be your kind of philosophy as well but whatever it is you have a clear plan and you you know you make it about that Spurs squad right you you kind of try to put the the chasing bit out of your mind as much as possible but to the extent that you do think about it you just try and frame it as yeah we've got a challenge here like Leicester are running away with it and every other team in the country seems to be helping them the press absolutely love that they're catch you know that they're top of the league basically you can kind of turn around and go well screw it like we're still going to catch them we're going to do our thing we're going to work hard and when we do overhaul them it will not just be the greatest season for Tottenham since the 60s it will also be an amazing comeback where we caught them by however many points and we were playing in Europe and you know like and you can start to spin all of those sort of negative potentially negative attributes you start to spin them as well won't this be cool when we pull it off um, and if you can sort of start to tap into that kind of frame of mind, you, it, 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 you know, even just talking to you now, it, I, I'm getting excited by that, <laughs> that concept, right? Of like, wouldn't that be cool? And it would have been immensely cool. Um, but you know, I think if you can start sort of framing things in those those ways, you you 
you start to tap into that sort of energy and enthusiasm and confidence, right? It makes so much sense. Um, and I think this leads quite nicely onto the, the next thing that we're going to talk about, which is um, is identity and the identity of a team. And I think Spurs, in some ways, uniquely do have an identity. Um, and, and that identity has been oft criticised. Lads, it's Tottenham springs to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's an identity for, for a team that plays with flair. doesn't necessarily, certainly in, in modern times, win things but plays with a particular style, um, with a particular swagger. Um, and and how how that might be affected by having a, a manager who is in, in some ways the opposite. I mean, he does win things. He, he clearly has spent his career winning things over and over and over again, but with a reputation uh, and perhaps an identity which has pragmatism at its heart. Talk to us about, um, about how, <laughs> the impact that might have. Yeah, so, I mean, identities are really helpful sort of feature or you know and it's it's been shown to be helpful for last time I was on we talked about self-efficacy so which is sort of broadly kind of self-confidence right the confidence that you can achieve a thing um and identity having a kind of clear team identity has been shown to be helpful for for building that sort of collective efficacy in in a group of individuals um and it's it's also helpful for in terms of the sort of cohesion of the group right if you have sort of certain attributes that you can all rally around that's that's helpful you can build yeah build team cohesion around those sort of those features and yeah I think for you know for Tottenham that sort of that identity is really ingrained in the club's kind of DNA right like whether it's the sort of the the club motto to dare is to do or whether it's the sort of Bill Nick quotes or whatever and 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 I think it goes all the way to you know when you when you go to White Hart Lane and they play the video before the team comes out and they say we are Tottenham and you know they actually in preparation for this I went and tried to find it online and like the way that they they emphasize who Tottenham are as a club is is really crystal clear you know like it, it goes through like you know we are the flick the trick the 30 yard free kick we are the lob the chip the dummy the volley right like i mean there's there's no doubt here they're not like we are the low block counter like so so there is a real sense there of like that's the club you're joining and that's who we are and how we play and that's almost certainly helpful I guess from a coaching perspective, I would imagine I, I'm, I'm not a coach, but I can imagine if you if you come into a club and that already aligns with how you want to coach, that's going to be helpful because you're going to have the fan base on side, the you know the club directors, you're going to have more of the players kind of already aligned to you. So that's that's helpful as well. Um, but it's it's also if that identity is already there and is there is already a, a sort of good sense of it, as I think there must be at Tottenham right like I don't think you could play for Tottenham and and avoid it um and and then you come in with a much more sort of pragmatic approach I think there is a chance that that starts to unravel any sort of identity or and and sense of either confidence that comes from that or a sense of sort of cohesion that comes from that and you know I I think you know again as a, a sort of the important important caveats that that I used a lot on the last time I was on like firstly you know I, I don't know Jose Mourinho I don't know any of the Spurs squad I don't work with them um I couldn't tell you if I had <laughs> um but also that you know I've won precisely zero major footballing <laughs> competitions so you know there is a real sense there that that you know so with all of that kind of said like nonetheless I kind of feel like if you come in with 
a sort of philosophy that is quite as you, you know, as you said sort of like pretty much the opposite of of any identity that sort of already exists i think that is that is tricky that's certainly a hurdle that would need to be overcome um and i think it's it's you know possible to see some of that kind of fall out as a result of that i guess I mean, it makes complete sense. Um, essentially, he's really got his work cut out for him if he wants to to do things in a different way. Um, <laughs> partly because it's built into the branding. I mean, such is football now that literally, as you say, the, the, the club motto is written all over the stadium, all over the training ground. Uh, players will just hear this lingo constantly. They'll be asked to say lines for, for bits that are put out on social media channels. Um, and, and it will just be ingrained in them to, to hear things relating to our style, our footballing culture, philosophy. And equally, I imagine um, sort of stepping aside slightly from the club motto, but I imagine when Pochettino came in as this sort of manager who was obsessed with pressing, I imagine that really was a, almost became a self-fulfilling prophecy because everyone was talking around Tottenham being a pressing team. 
then we sort of didn't get that. Like, and we've been, and I think over the course of Mourinho's tenure, it's that there have seemingly been sort of quite blocks of different strategies almost there have been times where we really have been a sort of counter-attacking team there's been times where we've looked like maybe we're actually trying to play a bit more possession but maybe not and like those have sort of come and gone and so I can if you were trying to forge a new identity that feels a little bit unhelpful and unclear as well um the other thing and, and again I think this is probably a little speculative but th- there's there's sort of concepts from that come from kind of social psychology around sort of how you develop kind of group cohesion and and identity is sort of part and parcel of that but it's um it, it's sort of the idea that like you have kind of in groups and out groups so basically you know like you have a group of people with whom you have things in common and you therefore bond around that sort of commonality right and this is you know all of human society has has this right so this could be you've got two spurs fans meet each other in a pub for the first time and they chat about how much they love spurs they bond over that commonality all of a sudden if you put them in front of an arsenal fan they you've got in group out group right the spurs fans and the arsenal fans but then all of a sudden if you put all of those guys and you cluster them together as football fans and you put them opposite a whole bunch of people who are insisting that cricket or rugby or tiddlywinks is the greatest sport on earth all of a sudden the spurs and the arsenal fans might get along and be like no mate you're what are you talking about? Cricket's rubbish or whatever, right? So the in-group, out-group thing is very contextual, right? It depends how you're defining it in the moment and who the out-group is, who the in-group is. And even conceivably then within the Spurs community, you can have in-groups and out-groups, right? So very literally, you might have Jose in, Jose out. That That is a sort of in-group, out-group. So if you are a dedicated Jose in person, you will bond with other Jose fans on that basis. And be skeptical or sort of less willing to engage with the people who fall into that outgroup in that context. So that's where an identity can also be really helpful because you can kind of say, here are some attributes of this football club that we will all buy into. And this will make us a stronger in-group, a more cohesive in-group. Um, and I think there's something quite interesting, and, and this is this is very unscientific, but my recollection of of sort of peak Mourinho years was he was incredibly good at creating an in-group that included him with all of his players. So my recollection of, of his sort of biggest, most controversial statements were always like Chelsea had lost. Someone had had a bad game and he would just come out immediately afterwards. And the first interview would say, Jose, you lost. Was that John Terry's fault or something along those lines? And he'd go, no, it's the refs. They're all bribed. You know, the, the game was rigged against us, right? So the back page the next day is Jose's been fined for saying this about refs. And it's not until the second paragraph of the article that it says, as part of a 2-0 defeat at home to Arsenal or whatever, like, and he was shielding it, right? He was saying, like, this is us against them, right? Like, come on, lads, you're part of my group. I'm protecting you. But also, like, you know, when he would, he would go on his sort of, kind of slightly baffling uh, conspiracy theories about how um, UEFA wanted Barcelona to win the, the Champions League when he was at Real Madrid. And again, that's a kind of us versus them. So it's very classic in-group, out-group. We are Real Madrid, we are an in-group, and the rest of the world is united against us to try and make sure that Barcelona win the Champions League. That, that really can foster some really strong team camaraderie and team unity. 
under those circumstances so that that can be really helpful and powerful especially if you've got a club that maybe doesn't have a strong identity already right if you don't have characteristics to cling to immediately when you walk through the door you can create some you can kind of create these sort of straw man bad guys scapegoats whatever to 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 rail against and you build the commonality in your group around that um and I think what's interesting is I think you could certainly that's my impression of, of how he used to handle the press. And I won, wonder whether there's a, been a bit of a shift in that so that now, you know, and arguably maybe there's a bit of a chicken and egg situation now that he feels like he's maybe under a bit more personal pressure for his for the performances of the teams he manages. There's a bit more. No, no, no. This wasn't me. This was the players. Oh, I see. And so see. all of a sudden he's essentially creating out groups. Like he, he's putting himself in an in-group and the players as an out-group. And of course, the players will sense that. So they will then start to go, oh, hang on. I thought we were all one big group, but now he's saying this is my fault or our fault. And that could potentially be unhelpful for that team sort of cohesion. Uh, and then you get the club captains, you could be saying, well, look, there are some players who are play on, playing unacceptably and behaving badly, which just which just adds to that. That's really interesting. And actually, in, in some ways, what you've just described, Alex, completely explains the Marinistas, as he calls them, the, the, the fan club that he essentially has, who follow him everywhere. They're all, they're all just part of the in-group. They're the yeah. people that he's taken on his journey from day one and, and and builds up from club to club to club. It makes complete sense. Yeah. And then you sort of, you can factor in, and this is, you know, you, you factor in sort of the idea of confirmation bias, which is a, a, a psychological phenomenon that absolutely everyone on earth yes. is susceptible to, where you have a pre-existing belief and you overemphasize the evidence that supports it and you filter out the evidence that doesn't right so all of a sudden if you believe that jose Mourinho is god's gift to football and is the best football manager that's ever lived you overemphasize his successes his his wins on a sort of grand scheme you know grand level or on a sort of week-to-week basis and you're more likely to sort of assign blame or or or, or find evidence that sort of continues to you know reinforce that belief. Um, so absolutely, uh, and and so being able to kind of you know yeah that sort of cognitive bias, uh, your confirmation bias is 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 a hugely powerful thing that everyone is susceptible to, and it plays a part in everyone's life on a day to day basis. It's definitely something people, you know, ideally would be aware of and try to sort of mitigate because it, it can be it's happening instantly in your own head and you don't necessarily pay attention to it. But it, it, it can essentially mean that a lot of a lot of the things you might believe are reasonably unfounded or, or certainly aren't sort of backed by evidence to the extent that you might think that they are. Um, I think that that's that's a helpful thing to sort of acknowledge from time to time. Definitely, definitely, and and you're speaking to the right person now. I'm I'm certainly I'm certainly guilty from time to time. Um, I have loads of questions for you from um, from our ex subs mainly, but this one first is from Bardi actually, who says, "Do you have any thoughts on penalty shootouts?" Um, and he points out that we've been pretty bad apart from the Audi Cup and Chelsea this year. Uh, but this is an area of expertise for you, really, isn't it? You've, you've done you're literally writing about um, well about this, aren't you? Yeah. So my my interest is my sort of research interest is in choking under pressure um, and 
yeah so sort of those kind of highly pressurized moments whether you kind of you go to pieces or not um and so obviously you know penalty shootouts would be potentially examples of that um and i mean there's some some very interesting stuff i mean a, a at the most kind of fundamental level, any anything you can do to sort of increase that sort of sense of of efficacy is is going to be helpful. So, you know, things like practicing penalties, you know, and and therefore kind of, you know, uh, you know, and I, I know that we've had kind of England football managers at times who've sort of laughed off the idea of of practicing penalties as though that would be the silliest thing in the world. It, it, that to me is sort of madness. Like you should absolutely be practicing them and. Obviously, you should be practicing them across many different players in the squad if you know that there is a, a possibility of a penalty shootout because you can't just have Harry Kane take all of the penalties. So you need to try and instill that sense of confidence into as many players as possible so that you have people to call on who will have a sort of baseline of confidence. Um, there are also some sort of... Um, there are some interesting bits of research on, on how you can potentially sort of uh, offset pressure and and any sort of underperformance that might come from that so there's some some quite quite interesting research that that actually squeezing a stress ball with your left hand uh can help reduce the the underperformance um which is sort of so astonishingly simple that you know you 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 could easily imagine that if that if that sort of continues to be replicated like by the next you know by 2022 any penalty shootout you'd have people squeezing stress balls before the before the penalty kicks um but yeah uh, there are i'm personally a little i think there's there's um, some kind of limitations in that research um it's always incredibly hard studying choking um because it's sort of dependent on these incredibly pressurized situations um to do that experimentally is tricky you you know there is only so much you can do as an experimenter both Mm -hmm practically and also ethically um, to create that sense of pressure um, while still measuring people's performance. So some people, some researchers go back and they they have sort of analyzed the outcomes of penalty shootouts over time. So obviously you can just go back and watch the footage and see whether or not people have missed or, or not. Um, so that can be sort of useful. Of course, you can't get any sense of how subjectively they felt about the sense of pressure in that moment, right? Someone might be cool as ice, even in a World Cup final, taking the decisive penalty. They may walk up and just be like, no, I've got this, right? Because they've got enormous sense of confidence in that situation and therefore be reasonably unaware of that sense of pressure. So for them, it would be hard to say whether they choked or not, because if they then struck it, you know, the classic sound of the, the, the Roberto Baggio, right? Like he skying the penalty um, in the World Cup final years and years and years ago now. But like that's that's often cited as an example of, of choking. Mm. But is it like it, we don't know unless you were to talk to him and say, like, how much pressure did you feel? And do you think that's the reason you missed it? Because he'd also because uh, I've looked into it a bit like he was basically coming back from injury into that World Cup. Right. So he might also just have been absolutely knackered yeah, because yeah. he had just yeah. played full match, extra time coming up back. He probably wasn't match fit. So maybe he was just exhausted. And that was what contributed to missing that penalty. So, you know, it's it's sometimes hard to sort of figure out the exact nuances of what what you can attribute to the pressure and what might be something else. Um, but nonetheless, if you are, you know, I, there's kind of no harm in it, especially with the sort of the simple things like squeezing a stress ball. Why would you not? Um, you could, you know, definitely have a crack at that and see if that helps. Um, and yeah, I mean, that would be that would be definitely helpful. But yeah, in, in general, it's going to be things like 
you know, just building confidence practice. You can do things like um, imagery, so which I think we may have spoken about last time, but the sort of playing through scenarios essentially in your head. So practicing those different things, the positive framing, right? So going up with a clear idea of like what you do want to achieve rather than thinking about what you don't want to achieve. Those are always going to be helpful. Um, there's certain other sort of reasonably sort of classic techniques for just trying to sort of manage your kind of anxiety or, or, or stress levels in those moments. So breathing exercises, relaxation exercises, those kind of things can help offset that sort of sense of anxiety. Um, some other ones that are harder potentially to do in the moment, but like things like listening to music have been shown to reduce senses of anxiety. I don't know if these guys can you know, pull out their sponsored beats by dre headphones <laughs> but you know like in the in the minute before a penalty shootout if they could that might help um but yeah there, there are certain sort of little things you can do um but and and also you know even coming back to the idea of just sort of like looking at previous examples so actually the the fact that we reasonably recently did win a penalty shootout <laughs> against chelsea is potentially very helpful right like we, that is something that certainly if i was the sports psychologist at spurs or the manager at spurs i would definitely be emphasizing that the next time we were in a match where it might go to penalties and just before the penalty you vote guys you you've got this you've done this before i've seen you guys win a penalty shootout go get them that kind of angle i guess so there you go Bardi. um Basically, what Alex is saying is you need to order some extra inch branded stress balls, probably 11 of them, and send them to uh, Hotspur Way. Um, another question. I really like this one as well. This was from, from Jess, another of our ex-subs. Um, and I think this is a really good point. It's quite a long one. I'm going to read, I'm going to read most of it because I think it's all relevant. So Jess says, I was wondering how much the lack of generic mental health and psychology literacy amongst men, which she says is a generalisation, um, impacts on the perceived legitimacy of sports psychology amongst high-level sports people. I remember listening to the ep with Alex and hearing terms that me and my friends, all of us queer women in our mid-twenties from uni-educated backgrounds, are very comfortable with. Things like self-efficacy, talking about our mental health conditions, etc. But wondered if our society's lack of methods to discuss these with younger men and boys has an impact on the ability for top male athletes to internalise these concepts early enough in their careers. And um, that resonated hugely with me. I mean, I, I definitely, I mean, I'm 37. I don't recall thinking about, let alone talking about my mental health until I was at least 19, <laughs> which I think speaks volumes. So uh, have you found that difficult to break through, Alex? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, sort of the, the short answer is, like, is, <laughs> is that a factor? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, and helpfully, I think there's been, you know, some big, pushes just sort of generally to kind of increase men's mental health awareness and sort of talk about um you know that there are some really terrifying statistics on sort of male suicide and things like that which you know are, are, you know not all of them necessarily but are broadly preventable just by you know i think just by guys being a bit more willing to to talk about how they're feeling and you know it's something that yeah, I get ridiculed for quite a lot that, you know, if I go, you know, in, in, in previous times going, you know, I'd go and hang out with my mates and we'd sit in a pub or something and we would just talk about sport for three or four hours. And then I'd come home and my wife would sort of go like, so how were they? And I'd go, I go, I don't know. I, I, I have no idea. But, you know, I now know what they all think about their respective football teams. And, you know, that's about it. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's definitely something there, and I think it sort of it needs a bit more from 
from from men you know just to sort of try and work a bit harder at that so sort of actively trying to ask you know um there's a sort of a classic kind of ask twice like so how are you doing yeah 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 but how are you doing kind of thing because you yes you'll get fine or could be worse or something as a, as a response but that's maybe not all that's going on um i think that that probably i would i would hope that that is is changing a bit in general that you know men are becoming a bit more aware of that and aware of some of the repercussions of, of that, um, of kind of not talking about their feelings or the mental health and, and being sort of willing to open up. Um, I think in a sort of purely sporting setting, it, it's it's definitely a factor. Um, I think you do probably get a sort of greater reluctance potentially from from men. And, and I think often, you know, there's a sort of probably a kind of it, it varies a little bit by age as well that you might have you know the kind of late teens sort of adolescent kind of age where they sort of don't want to be perceived as weak by teammates or friends or whatever so there might be a little bit more sort of reluctance to do so there um I think also though it, it's actually quite interesting that I think it probably varies a good amount by sport as well um I think there's this is a bit speculative but maybe there's to some extent a bit of a sort of socioeconomic factor in that as well but for example like cricket has been really open about mental health topics and has been very accepting of sports psychology for for far longer than than football has and you've had very high profile cricketers who've retired from the game basically yeah. saying like no I, i've got to look after my mental health and the cricket community has rallied around them and gone absolutely do what's right for you yeah, yeah. Um, in a way that perhaps isn't necessarily true. You know, we, we've got a sort of an increasing number of footballers who have come out, you know, a, a couple from Spurs, you know, Aaron Lennon and, uh, you know, Danny Rose have been sort of reasonably forthright in talking about their mental health issues. Um, and I think that's that's all good. You know, you need those people to sort of blaze that trail and talk about those things openly. But I, I think it's, there's a bit of a, bit of a sense of maybe catch up there. Um, there's also like the, the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team are, are very good at advertising lots of the work that they do with sports psychologists and on sort of mental health. Um, I think that's also conceivably just that New Zealand loves rugby in a way that basically, you know, very few countries love a sport the way that New Zealanders love rugby. Like, you know, probably Brazil and football and India and cricket are kind of the only comparable ones. But, um, you know, so if you're an All Black, you are kind of a demigod already so if you, you know it's it's a great platform there's a sort of sense of security that comes from that potentially that you can kind of feel open to talk about some of these things using uh, is obviously also quite a sort of uh sort of liberal leaning country as well maybe they just as a disposition there there's probably a greater sense mm -hmm. of kind of maybe just being a bit more open on some of these topics anyway um and even i think probably just the fact that if you're if you're a six foot eight rugby player who weighs 250 kilograms and you come out and go here's what i feel no one's going to turn around and be like well i reckon you're a bit of a wimp because I'm, I'm not sure i'd want to be the one who says that to the <laughs> to the guy who's six foot eight so yeah um but i think I, I think there's yeah there's a million different factors that that play into that um but for sure i i think it is certainly uh, a, a, an issue I, I think it's one that's changing it's one that i think hopefully will continue to change and, and hopefully even change at a, a faster pace. Um, but yeah, it, it's a tough one. Do you, do you see that as part of your job? So if you're, if you're given a brief to go in and work with a sports team or an individual to improve their sporting performance, do you see it as part of your role to 
talk about how they're feeling generally? Is that something you do by default? Um, yeah, so for sure. I mean, I, I, I think it can be quite tempting to think of sports people, particularly kind of elite sports people as sort of emotionless robots. Sometimes that could be the perception of the sort of the, the, the fans and the media. Um, but of course they're not. Right. Um, and so I think sometimes it's a case of, you know, I have to, kind of, you know, as, as a sports psychologist, you have to sort of go into an organization and, and sort of try to basically also just sort of put the case for sports psychology. So sort of tell them what they can get out of it. And often it's, you know, a case that people don't necessarily understand what sports psychology is in the first place. So you're sort of trying to sort of say, like, here's how I can help. Here's things I can do for you. But also, that you know, it's impossible to differentiate the sports person from the person. So you, you, you almost certainly, you know, if someone is having struggles in their personal life, whether that's a sort of a relationship or, you know, any sort of other worries, like it's, it's almost certainly going to have some sort of impact on, on how their training, their focus levels, their motivation levels, their performance levels, all the rest of it. So it's basically impossible not to try to delve into, into some of that. Um, obviously some of that is then a bit sort of restricted potentially by how much time you have available with sure. with that sports person so if you are dealing with a big organization and you know that you have really limited time you might try to focus on some of the more sort of sort of slightly superficial i, I don't love that word but like the, those kind of just focus on the sporting performance because you know you don't necessarily want to open a can of worms yeah. that you, yeah. you then don't have the time and energy and access to to help clear up so there's an element there of, of okay all right well if you come to me and you've got a very clear problem with your your game that you want addressed and i know i only see you for an hour once a month i might just focus on okay well have you tried some visualization or some goal setting or so, sure. you know, something like that without trying to get into some of the sort of deeper underlying things but would there, would there then be a kind of ethical responsibility to refer them on for uh, talking therapy or something yeah for sure and so the the sort of certainly if as a sports psychologist you kind of come across someone who's got sort of pretty clear sort of serious mental illness we we have to refer them on to a clinical psychologist or, or you know or someone who, who would be who would have the capabilities to do that because we you know we aren't we aren't trained to sort of deal with someone who's got an eating yeah. disorder or or sort of severe depression or whatever so um for those kind of things we we would have to refer on and sometimes that will be a case of working in conjunction with that other psychologists so that you know you've got someone sort of who's helping out with those sort of more underlying things but you might the, that that sports person might still want the sports psychologist involved on just sort of helping out with the sporting side of things um so that's possible or it might be a case of yeah you refer them on and then hopefully as they sort of come out the other side of that they might come back to you or or not so but yeah there's um there's a clear sort of yeah a, a sense of you know there are limitations to what i'm ethically competent to sort of deal with um and then i have to have to pass them on yeah that makes complete sense um i feel like i'm taking up so much of your time i'm going to ask you one more if that's okay um, yeah so this this one is from this was from cole who says do you think it would be smart for teams to mandate their players to have regular sessions with a sports psychologist or would it be more beneficial for it to be encouraged but ultimately a decision on the part of the player yeah so i think this is a this is such a good question i i, I mean in general i think with you know you know, this, this applies to basically all we've spoken about today, but, you know, sports psychology or, or psychology is, is a skill, essentially, you know, and, and or a set of skills that need to be practiced, like passing and dribbling and shooting and all the rest of it. So um, it's 
and the the extent to which you are put, willing to put in the effort and be open to doing it is is therefore likely to have a pretty big impact on how successful you are at achieving those goals. So working with someone who really doesn't want to be there is going to be pretty fruitless and frustrating for both parties, for, for me and for the sports person. That being said, like, obviously, you know, you'd love to go into an environment and you could, like I said, you, you'll try and lay out, here's how this can be helpful to you, you, you know, and hopefully you can get the buy-in from those players or those sports people in that environment. In that moment, you, you can do a good enough job. I guess the biggest sort of, and you, you may also, I guess the, the, the other part of this is like, you also potentially might have workshops or sort of group sessions. So it could be a case of like, the whole team is required to go to, a workshop where I'll be sort of telling them some concepts and giving them some tools and techniques and maybe we'll be practicing them. And I, that very interesting article about Wickham that, that I know you guys sent sent around before we played them um, covers a lot of that, right? So the psychologists are working in, in groups with the players off the, off the field and then they're also basically standing there and watching training and, and helping in the moment as well in training sessions. So there's definitely the, the capacity to work with multiple individuals in a group setting as well. Um, but I think what is the the biggest benefit, I guess, uh, so I think my, my overall answer would probably be like, no, I wouldn't love it if it was mandated. I think the only benefit to doing that is it would help potentially remove any barriers, right? Like, because if it's a case of like, you have to be seen walking down the corridor to the office of the sports psychologist yeah, yeah, yeah. to knock yeah. on the door, and if there, if you, if it is an environment where that might be stigmatized, that's unhelpful in of it in and of itself. So a lot of what sports psychologists end up doing is, you know, kind of just making themselves very available. So kind of sitting in a nice, open, accessible place, keeping their door open if they have an office. But that's quite reasonably rare that that happens. But you know, like, so it's making yourself approachable and available. It's going over and basically sort of checking in with as many people as you can. So just going over and sort of saying like, hey, how are you? Like, what's going on? How are you feeling today? And then you kind of maybe that sparks something and that might be a moment when they go would it be okay if I come and see you later or you know obviously these days sort of maybe it's virtual or whatever but maybe there's a way of then doing it if you if you as the sports psychologist have sort of been seen to make the first move and it's known that the sports psychology comes sports psychologist comes over and does that to everyone then maybe that helps sort of break down some of that reluctance I guess um so that would be the only real benefit I think to to doing it in that way um, that's so, you, so interesting I just I just hadn't even considered that barrier existing but it ties in with everything Jess said as well um yeah and and we are still in this country a little way behind other countries I think in terms of accepting that this is this is normal and helpful um Alex I, this has been so interesting I really really appreciate your insight I'm sure our listeners do too it was a very popular episode last time when you were on um is there anything you'd like to say about your company before we wrap up? I mean, I know, bizarrely, you actually did get some work off the back of uh, your last podcast appearance. I think someone contacted you and said they heard you on the extra inch. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, we are, the, the company's called Optimized Potential. Um, we've been running all through all through lockdown, um, helping people try and sort of stay motivated under, under the circumstances where they probably couldn't necessarily train in the way that they'd like to. Um, yeah, and at the moment, obviously, People are starting to kind of, as, as lockdown eases and, and there's a bit of a timeline for, for getting back to it, we're starting to sort of help clubs or individuals with, with sort of like managing that. So managing expectations, trying to build confidence and people potentially have very abbreviated seasons. So they don't have the, you know, they might actually have some competitions, but won't have had nearly as much 
preparation time so how they can sort of try and approach that and obviously a lot of that ties into that sort of challenge mindset of all right we'll try and make the most of it you know for, for what it is um so yeah i mean if anyone if that feels like something that anyone is is interested in um i do also i, I guess i should probably mention I, I do also do a little bit of um work with kind of professional performance as well so uh, a lot of the concepts that well basically all of the you know concepts that that sports psychology covers in terms of performance and motivation and focus are almost always applicable in in work scenarios as well so uh, there's also scope there but yeah other than that I'm, I'm I'm always just very happy to to talk about sports psychology and and help people learn and I think you know coming back to that that topic of sort of encouraging men to talk about their mental health and talk about their feelings and open up and be a bit vulnerable I think it's it's useful you know I, I know you guys did a great job a couple of weeks ago in talking about the sort of how men can be better allies to women and I was you know very very that was a, a, a great piece and I was very sort of proud that this was a podcast I had appeared on that you guys took that stand but I think you know we all have a bit of a responsibility to sort of do what we can um so if this is a way that I can talk to a predominantly male listenership and say hey have you ever thought about <laughs> your psychological well-being um even if it's just chatting to you for a bit uh, about Spurs mainly then uh then then that's good and uh it's a, yeah just a, a pleasure to be in, involved in that process anyway amazing thank you Alex really really appreciate it and um, and hopefully we'll catch up soon Wonderful. Thanks for having me. React in a positive way. We need positivity for this second half. Positivity, believe, positivity, believe. 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 